Life can be a bit of a handful. But what do you do? Let go. Or grab on to everything it has to offer. Ask yourself, do you back down when things get tough? Or confront them, breasts on? Do you give up or give it hell? Do you ignore your amazing boobs or fearlessly check them regularly? We thought so. This is grabbing life by the boobs. So grab regularly and check out any changes. It could save your life. Search Copperfield. Grab life. Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this week the Happy Place Festival descends on Manchester as we spend time in the company of Dame Kelly Holmes. When my mum passed away, I was like, no, I am going to be me. The day of her funeral, I shaved off this side of the hair that I'd been talking about for three years. I mean, it was longer than this. I shaved it off because I thought, I want to be me. Yes. I'm going to dress how I want to dress. I'm going to look how I want to look because I've still got my values. I've still got my respect for people and I still work damn hard and I still encourage other people to be the best they can. It doesn't matter how I look. As with lots of our chats, we go to some intense places. If that might be an issue for you, do check the show notes on your app for any trigger warnings you may need to know about. That's very important. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, cast your mind back to the last sunny weekend we had, which feels like a long while ago, and prepare to meet Olympic champion Dame Kelly Holmes. Awkward, we, we've got the we same leggings lots, on. Lots. Yes, recycled. I should have checked with you first, but we're just we're twinning it. It's fine. It. It's all good. Um, Kelly, thank you so so much thank for you. being here today and for being such a, an important part of the festival because you've you've dedicated so much time to it and I massively appreciate it. I I loved reading your autobiography. I learned so much about you that I didn't know about. Let's talk about the military because you were in the army for about ten years. Mm-hmm. What And also you were attracted to that way of life at a very young age when you were 17. So what was that initial draw? What made you think that is the life for me? Well, initially it came from being at school. So I wasn't academic at school whatsoever. And I think back then, definitely, um, the way that they taught children was very one, like very linear. It was kind of... I just couldn't apply myself. I'm very creative and, you know, energy, but I just wasn't good at reading, wasn't good at writing, and then if I switched off, I'm just going to chat. I went to school purely for my friends, mm. I mean, to be honest, at that stage. And then they had the careers officers come round, Army, Navy and Air Force, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, the only exam that I would have liked to have gone for was my P exam, but I was the only girl in sc- or only person in school that was going to go for it, so they cancelled the, the course. So I was like, well, you know, what else? So anyway, the careers officers came round, and they showed these three videos. One was of the Air Force, 
It didn't show flying planes, otherwise they probably would have gone for that, but they showed the administrative side, so I was like, no. Then they showed the Navy, the ships at sea. I couldn't swim when I was 14, so I was like, that's a no. Not, not the one for me. <laughs> and then they showed the army, the soldiers, screaming and shouting at all the other soldiers going like underneath the scramble net, over the 12-foot walls, swinging on the ropes. So I was like, yes, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be the one getting down dirty and the one screaming and shouting, basically. Wow. So I ended up getting my mum to take me when I was 14, 15, 16 and 17 to the careers office for my birthday to try and get in, but I was always too young because back then it was you had to be 17 and 9 months months to join now it's like 16 so anyway when I was 17 I ended up going I only had three choices because I left school with no unfortunately no um, exam results so I had to be a chef and I was like mum's cook like home you know me no Um, (laughs) to be administrator no and then I could go as a heavy goods vehicle driver so I joined as a heavy goods vehicle driver and that's it (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) I I got in. And then, yeah, and then my mission was obviously to be a physical training instructor. And I failed my first selection when I was 21. I was so gutted because it was so much about somebody else's perception of you. Well, this is it. This is what. I couldn't believe that in the book that it came down to one person's opinion. But Mm -hmm. what I loved was that you so desperately wanted to do that Mm -hmm. that you put up a fight and you said, I'm not having that. (laughs) I'm not having that result. And actually, after you contested it, you then went through to the next level. Yeah, well, I ended up putting myself on every single course you can imagine. Because when somebody says, you can't, you can either go, oh, okay, and, you know, take that as a negative, or go, okay, I'll bloody show you then. And because if you want something bad enough, you'll find a way of doing it. So I put myself on every course, and I went on my second selection course and came top student. Wow. Because it's just through determination sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Um... I mean, that, you've obviously been so sort of tenacious since you were a kid and, and like that. Like, if someone says no, you go, well, I'm going to say yes or I'm going to try again or whatever. Is that just inherently who you are or do you think your childhood has made you that? Can you see that sort of nature versus nurture and what bits are what? Yeah, I think from a very young age, I've always sort of fought for my, uh, myself, you know. Um, you know, when I grew up, I was just a council girl kid, didn't have money, so I didn't get pocket money. So if you're going to go and get pocket money, go find it yourself. So I used to wash cars for my neighbours, wash the windows, I'd do like two paper rounds, I'd do everything just to be able to get my own money. And so I think it just made me fight for things that I wanted, mm. um, but do it in the right way, you know, be proud of that and always had values and always say please and thank you, all of the things that actually get you through life and, you know, hopefully a nice way let's say and but you know you have to fight for things and not everything is easy in life is it and again you can either go in a way that by things not being easy you take a step that is very very undermining and negative and you put yourself down at everything and I always used to think well you know, if you try hard, at least you can say you tried. I've always had this thing from a very young age that I don't want to live if, if only, because if only yeah. it's too late. But if I've tried it and it didn't go right, well, at least I tried. Mm. So I've had that from a young age, I think. Because I really got a sense when I, was, when I was reading your autobiography, you know, you didn't have an easy time growing up. You know, your mum had you when she was very, very young. Mm-hmm. And you've talked very openly about the fact that she certainly struggled to kind of bring you up in the early days. Mm. And there were setbacks there with, with your childhood. But you, you never seem to sort of talk about it in a really negative way. You're always... You always sort of um, talk about it in a very optimistic way and in a way 
that seems to have given you so much resilience in life that you've been able to charge forward and, and do all of these things that you want to do? Is that how it's felt? Yeah, I think so. I think um, if I look at the journey... So my mum, for those that know, had me when she was 17, so... Um, and she had me to a Jamaican guy. So back then, living in Kent, been born, uh, bred in Kent, it wasn't the done thing to have a mixed-race child. So her mum and dad, my nan and granddad, said that she couldn't basically have me until she could prove that um, she could look after herself. So I was put into care homes, and my mum used to come at weekends when she could. And um, But... I don't know, I think, because I remember things from back that day, even when you're young, I think you remember, because you remember that detachment or when somebody leaves you, that fear of them not coming back. So that, as a young person, that gets ingrained. I mean, one thing I do remember that was quite funny, actually, is that they used to call me down when I was at, in the care home. They called me down one day and they went, your mum's on telly. She, my mum was only on Generation Game. Yes! With, with my granddad. Were they conveyor I mean, belt of no, joy? No, they didn't get that far. They oh. got a bloody clock. But <laughs> <laughs> tell you it's just really weird how you remember little things you know I was only like four or five legendary but, um, tv show yeah. um but yeah so I think just growing up and then um she married who's my my dad who I call my dad Mick because uh, my my dad left before I was in one I don't know don't care um but uh <laughs> so my so I remember things through my childhood like going to an all-white school you know living in an all-white area I remember Boney M brown girl in the ring that's how I'm coming out who was the brown girl in the ring you know but I could either have thought oh I feel like everyone's picking on me but I say yeah well I'm special then I'm unique you know and that's yeah. how I've gone through my life yeah. not looking at me being different to any situation if I can't do something okay well I can do other things mm. you know if someone puts me down okay well you're good at that I'm not I I'm good at something else and that's how I've gone through life mm. and I never ever looked at color I didn't you know the only time I ever realized it was different was when my mum and Mick had my first brother eight years later and was white and I, I was like oh different color skin you know mm. but I don't see color because I've only grown up in Kent yeah. So for me, I don't even know who, what I know. Mm. And other people maybe have a perception of what you might have gone through, but I don't. I was just me. And I've always been just Kelly. You know, when I went to school, my identity became because of sport being Kelly. And that was it. That's how I've gone through life. And you talk about in the army, um, you didn't experience any sexism, any racism at all. And actually, when you were um, a personal trainer and you had the majority of people that you were training were men, you had some really great tactics to get respect right from the start. Can you tell yes. us about that? Yes, I was posted, I was a corporal, I was posted in Beaconsville at Army School of Languages. Some of the trainees that came used to come from universities, so they used to come to Beaconsville to learn Army law before they went to officer training in Santos. And I remember this one occasion. Now, you have to remember that I was a junior international athlete, given up my career to join the army, but not many people knew about that. So these guys come in, about 30. They're all standing there. They're talking, talking. And in the army, when you're a physical training instructor, like the gym, you're like, God, this is, like, this is my gym, you know. You're yeah, here for My hell. territory. That, yeah, exactly. Well, they came in chatting, 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 obviously not knowing anything about army law. So I thought... Okay, I can play this two ways. I can either beast them because in the army you have to do it, or I can set them a challenge. So, of course, my way is about gaining respect. You earn respect by gaining respect. So, 
I said, okay, let's go for this run. We're going to go for this uh, three-mile run. We're going to go out of the gym, through the gate, past the assault course, you know, the high walls and the nets, go through this forest, out into this big expanse, wide crater area, come back round. If you beat me, you do not have to come to PT at all for two weeks. If I beat you... You have to come in every morning at 5am and every night at 8pm for two weeks. Because I loved my job. I mean, let's face it. And they're uh, thinking, <laughs> they're like, oh, that's going to be yeah. easy. I said, what do you think? And they went, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've got this. Yeah, of course. You know, they're university kids, so of course they did. But I thought to myself, what's my connection with university? Nothing. Other than when I was 18, joining the army, we had a place called the Nuffy. And that's where you went to just drink and get drunk all the time. So I thought, that must be what they do at uni. So... Um, <laughs> I'm going to be fine. <laughs> that was it, yeah, right. Anyway, I also thought with a challenge like that, they're just going to run. They don't know yeah. the course. It was right undulated, so they did. Went off. I closed the gate, which is like about 100, uh, 100 metres from the uh, gym. I closed the gate. It was the last person. I'm going through. By the time we've got past this sort course through the woods, half of them are walking. I was like, yes. Going through. They're going round. I see some in the distance, and they're going up, and the uh, reeds were up you know, quite high, and it's really up and down and I thought oh, by the time I'd got round this big expanse probably three quarters of them are dead so then I come back round and we come back through the forest and there's about ten we're coming through there and I'm thinking right you know I've got to do this anyway we come past this sort of course there's now two guys in front of me and I saw the gate and I thought I close the gate they've got to stop at the gate to open it so that was good anyway <laughs> so we're going down there Tactics. I caught one caught the other up at the gate and it was a hundred metres to the uh, gym and Linford Christie had won the 1992 uh, Olympic 100 metre title that year. I became a Linford Christie. Yes. High knees, arms. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like, go to the gym and those guys were charging and I was going, I was like, that's it, beat all 30 of them in. Oh, yes. Love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So they were all in at 5.30 the next day, you which is wonderful their news. look on their face. They never said a word after. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's a genius tactic. I love it. Um, let's talk about that, I guess, very tricky sort of uh, dynamic you were balancing of, of being a competitive athlete and still being in the army. Because what I found really interesting in the book is you were approached before joining the army to go and do athletics full-time, but you still said, no, I really want to be in the army. And it really made me think it's funny in life how we assume we're making all the decisions. Like, this is what I'm going to do in my life, and this is what's happening. But athletics still found you. It was like, you're not going to get away with this one. You need to be, you know, a high-performing athlete. And it still came knocking at the door. So for a bit, you were doing both. How did you cope with that demand physically and emotionally and, and juggling your time? It was quite hard, because from the age of 14... I had two dreams. One was to be in the army as a physical training instructor and one was to be Olympic champion. So that was always in there. And then when I gave up my athletics to join the army, I was fully 100% committed to be a soldier, basically. Then I watched the 1992 Olympic Games where Olympia Christie had won and I saw a girl called Lisa York who I'd used to run against when I was a junior running and I thought, oh my God, like she's she's at the Olympics. You know, I'm sitting in my little barrack room with my bed and my wardrobes and she's at the Olympic Games. I was like, oh my God. And it reignited like that passion for what I believed I was good at. So I started running and... um, I started running again. I was already running for the army. Yeah. And oh, just literally within six months of 
deciding that I was going to run a bit more. I got to world championships and I got to semi-final and I was still juggling my career. I used to use my leave to go away and compete because I wanted to have the respect of being a good physical training instructor, not that I was just going off willy-nilly. So I used to use all the years up until I retired, I used my leave to go away and compete. Wow. The following year, I won Commonwealth Games gold medal in Victoria. Two weeks later, European silver. The next year, I won two World Championships medals. Then I went to my first Olympic Games at 26 uh, whilst I was still in the army. And unfortunately, that one, I came forth with a stress fracture. So it was juggling that whole, there's another dream, but I was mm. already in one, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But sport's such a fine line, you know, and at the end of the day, when my first Olympics, I was 26, which was relatively old to coming back into the sport anyway. And the reason why I swapped, I, I, I left the army was because in 1997, I sustained a really bad injury. I got a ruptured calf at the World Championships when I was favourite to win that games by I was five seconds faster than anyone else in the world that year and I ruptured my calf and then going back into work I couldn't do my job Mm. and yet I couldn't do my athletics so I decided that I had to leave my career and how hard was that because it was it had been a dream for so long and something that you were you know emphatically passionate about doing Mm. I it must have felt like a bereavement going I've got to say goodbye to that (laughs) forever now yeah it really is especially like in a a job which is very secure, almost, mm. you know, and you get the camaraderie, you know, it's institutionalised almost. Mm. So actually making that decision, it's like anyone being in anything for a long, long time, to make that decision to leave, you have doubts about yeah. your future and what's going to happen if the next thing doesn't go right. But sometimes you have to take that risk. And I just thought, I have to. If I really want to go for my dream of being an Olympic champion, I was 27, I have to do it. Mm. So I left. And actually the following year I was awarded MBE for services to the military because of the career that I'd given. So I was pleased with that. And then I just focused 100% on my athletics. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So one lesson that we've all watched you from the sidelines have to sort of learn again and again is, I guess, patience. Because you had so many setbacks, back-to-back, constant uh, injury, like you said, with your calf and your Achilles. And we have all read more recently how difficult that has been for you. How did that emotionally and mentally impact you when you were going through this complete crazy roller coaster of one year winning medals, the next year injury and having to sit it out? How did you ride that roller coaster? Oh, it was really hard. Um, You know, as an international athlete, you do push yourself to the absolute extremes. You know, there's a fine line between being one of the best in the world and as fit as you can to being injured. Initially, I think all of the injuries I had were almost the driver for change and to feel like I could do something. Because when I got the stress fracture at the first Olympics, I still came fourth in the final with a stress fracture. I was just having injections into the bone to numb the pain. But the, the day of my final, the doctor hit the actual site and it was the emotion behind it that was struggle. Oh. And I think I came fourth. So coming fourth, I thought, but if I can come fourth at an Olympic Games with a stress fracture, I can do this. And that was almost my mantra. 
next year, World Championships, five seconds faster than anyone else in the world after beating the British record set by Zola Budd, the barefoot runner from South Africa. I don't know if any of you are old enough to know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) God. Anyway. (laughs) Um, And then rupturing my calf completely, tearing my my Achilles and saying, your career is over, and I wouldn't let them do that. Mm. The following year was uh, Commonwealth Games, and I fought so hard to get to those games. I got a silver medal. I don't know how but I did then the next year I was 30 Olympic Games and I was thinking I'm bloody 30 I if anyone does actually follow me on social they know that I have a big thing about ageing I hate it <laughs> I'm not gonna lie I do I love it. your honesty around that one though not many people say it no, I, I, I really love getting older and feeling wiser and it's like no it's shit <laughs> yeah, yeah basically so when I, when I was 30 I was thinking oh my god I'm ancient oh, if only we were back there right but um, <laughs> And then, so that year, I got a 12-centimetre tear in this calf, told, mm, not going to get there in time. I was like, I am. So I changed all my training. I'd go in the gym, I'd do circuits, I'd go in the pool with a buoyancy vest and do my running. I'd go on the step at the cross-trainer, got to the games. Oh, if you get to the semi, it's a good thing, you know, yeah, like, yeah, celebrate. Yeah. I got there, got to the final, it'd be a big thing, got there. 200 metres for the line, I headed for gold. I don't know what overtook me, I just went. And then I looked at the screen 30 metres before and thought, shit, I'm in front. And suddenly like, ah, tired up, you know. So, <laughs> and then one girl come past me, the next girl cast, come past me, and I got bronze. I got bronze. And it's game, 30 years old, I got bronze. Yes. <laughs> and then... Um, <laughs> So that was all like the highs, the highs of it. So mm. highs and lows, highs and lows. Then I had a decision. Do I carry on for another four years? going to be 34 by the next Olympic Games, or do I not? And I thought, I haven't achieved my dream. That bronze is great, and gold at that time, three weeks later, it's still bloody bronze. So I had to go. <laughs> Remember the year before, I had glandular fever. The year after, in 2001, I got Epstein-Barr virus, which is a recurrence of glandular fever, and tonsillitis. Still got to the World Championship, still got to the final. Commonwealth Games in Manchester, 2002. I know I've met a lady that watched me there, yes. uh, win gold. And then I got a European silver, 2003, World Indoor Champs. Um, got a silver in Birmingham, and then the World Outdoor Champs. I was in Paris, and everything was going so well. And I was in a holding camp and literally, um, oh, I don't know, I think I got a niggle on my calf again. And somewhere from I didn't know why, I just thought, what is happening? Mm. You know, why? Why again? I just thought I was just being tested and tested and tested. Anyway, I was in, um, in our apartment and I went into the toilet and I broke down crying. I was putting on the tats because my training partner and my uh, coach were actually outside in the apartment. And I was crying, I was thinking, why is this happening to me? And I looked in the mirror, and at that moment, had the biggest breakdown of my life. Like, literally, I hated myself. I hated my body. I wanted the floor to open up. I wanted to jump in. I didn't, wouldn't care if I didn't go out the next day. I didn't care. I saw some scissors on the side, and I ended up picking up the scissors, and I started cutting myself every day I'd been injured, which was a lot. And when you're a runner, and you only wear shorts and a crop top, there's not that many places to cut yourself. And then if you do cut yourself in the wrong place, how do you do it? You hide it with makeup. I was in a bad place. I literally had a bit of just a breakdown. Yet I was still getting ready for world champs. So half of my side, half of me was dying. The other half was living, fighting. And um, I don't know how I did it, but I went to the World Champs and I still got a um, silver medal in the 800 metres, two weeks after not wanting to be here, you know. And um, 
But that resilience yeah. is extraordinary because, um, you know, I'm sure everyone in this room has had times they've felt despair. Mm. But to still keep going, I'm so intrigued about how, like, where that resilience comes from and how you just kept going, even though, like you said, you felt dead inside, but you mm-hmm. still managed to, to show up and to be around a lot of people and to put yourself out there in front of thousands, millions of people watching you around the world. Mm. That is um, extraordinary. Was it almost sort of out of body that you would just go into autopilot, you knew you had to do it? Yeah, I think, you know, having... We sometimes overuse maybe the word goals and dreams and that people don't really look at them. They just It's a word instead of actually realising that they can be a driver for your life. They can be like the lifeline, the thing that you see the pathway to go, the thing you hold on to. And for me, I was holding on to my Olympic dream. I think if I didn't have that, I don't know what would have happened, to be honest. But um, I just felt that I there was something inside me it's so hard when I talk about it but literally since that day I watched Limp- um, I actually watched Sebastian Coe win the 1500 metres when I was 14 and I got that goosebumps I always had this something inner about me that one day you'll get it and I always just believed I would become Olympic champion but I was running out of time you know? <laughs> wow, so, um, wow wow it was just so strong you know but it is it is resilience you know it is resilience of life because and what I what was the struggle back then is that no one spoke. I didn't know anything about breakdown or depression no. or self-help. I had no idea. No one. I, no one. And could you it. talk to anyone? Was there anyone you thought this is going to be all right if I talk to that person? No, the only person I sort of spoke to, but in broken French, given I sat outside the classroom every French lesson. Um, <laughs> Kind of just sort of, I went for a massage, broke down on the table, and she was trying to say, and I said, oh, everything's going wrong again. And she was just talking to me, but I didn't tell her too much about it. She said, but you haven't given up yet, you know. And I remembered that I hadn't, gi- I hadn't given up. Mm. But I couldn't talk to my training partners or my coach or my family because my co- training partners and my coach, I'd be bringing negative energy to them. So I thought, I can't tell them. I can't tell my friends, my family, because they say, oh, maybe you should come home. I didn't want to hear that. So who do you talk to? And the problem is in sport, and at least sport, is when you get injured, they treat an injury, but they never ask you, or didn't back then, ask you, how do you feel about it affecting your career? You know, it's your livelihood, it's your career, it's your focus, it's your identity, it's everything. Mm. Um, And do you think that's changed? Do you think there's more focus on that now? Yeah, definitely, a lot more, because you'll see a lot more high-profile people now talking about the journey they went through, and I'm so pleased that we're in that place. You're so right, right because, you know, even if you're not an athlete, we do spend so much time going, I'll go for a run, or I might have a massage, or I'll drink kombucha, or something that's going to make us physically feel good, but our heads still get left to... You know, you know, right down the list. How do I feel mentally? How will I approach that situation and deal with things emotionally? Yeah. How did you start to get yourself out of that rut? Because yeah. we'll get to the good bit where Kelly wins two gold medals. It's not a spoiler alert. We all know that. Um, <laughs> but how you get your confidence back? Because when you're, you've nosedived, confidence yeah. is one of the first things to go for any of us when we're in a situation of despair. We just don't have any. It goes. So how did you build that back up again? Yeah. So, I mean, I have to be honest, and we'll talk probably about it in a minute. I'm approaching slightly differently this side of it now, and especially, you know, things I've had to deal with since. But back then, I think it was that whole piece of I realised that I did need to get support and having the guts to ask for it. But I didn't tell them exactly what was going on with me. But I told my physiotherapist, 
I need, I need you. Like I literally said, I need you to be the best physio you can ever be. I will never achieve my dream without you committing to me. And it's quite selfish, but to win a gold medal, it doesn't take me just running around the track. It takes a team of people. So like that felt alien like, to ask for yeah, more help. To say I needed help felt really... You know, to admit you need help with mm. someone is really hard, you know. Um, and then I thought my training partners and just people around me, I said to my friends and family, look, you know, this is what I do. You know, it, just keep me focused, keep me positive, save good things, you know, oh, it'll be all right. You know, say all the things that I want to hear if I call you and I'm a little bit <laughs> in despair. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I just rallied around and got the team and I just was so honest with them. I said, you know, if I win, we win. You know, because if you're a good physio, you're a good physio now at university, but if you're a physio to Olympic champion, you people will know yeah. who you are. And that's how I sort of brought people on side. And 2004 was the first year in seven that I didn't have an injury because I came out of that. I wasn't out of it, but I believed that I'd never be as low as that again. Yeah. And having that moment in my life meant that I felt I could only ever be, be get better. Yeah. And instead of having that dwell that maybe I'll never get out of it, I used as I did as a child to always go, well, this is what it is. I learned from it. I, I'm not, you can't just deal with it there and then. I didn't. I was mm. still in a, a psychologically and not in a great place, but I kept so focused on my dream that that kept it a lot, me alive, really. Yeah. Um, and so... And then because it was sport that was at that time, there was other things, but at that time was bringing my emotions down. Um, every time I did a good race, I felt good, you know, and then training was getting better and I felt I was getting my confidence back and my self-belief was just improving and the team around me gave me the energy and, you know, the smiles and the happiness and well done, and I just felt good. And because of I asked for help, and, you know, it's so important so to important, ask for so help. Important. There's so many people around you that would, would want to help yeah, you. Yeah, you know, you can't. People say, oh, but did you not think it would be a burden if you did ask? No, I never think something's a burden because other people... Uh, I don't know. We probably. I don't want to jump too far. We we'll come back to that. But anyway, um, no. I think it's a really valid point because Kelly, yeah. don't you think it's a really British thing that we all go? Oh, I won't burden that person. I won't. Yeah. I'll just be stoic and carry on on my own. And then, and then actually, it's worse for everyone around us because they're suffering too because they see you suffering. And it's something we all need to get better at: is going. Could you help me? Could you even just like you're saying to your family? Can you? keep me buoyant when I feel a bit down you know yeah. it's so important that we all do it and we find it excruciating to do that yeah. it's bizarre well the reason why I say it now I have to say is like in 2005 when I wrote my autobiography first book um it's the first time I told anybody about what I was going through I wrote it in the book because I was thinking how do I tell anyone yeah. well okay I wrote it in the bloody book yeah. you know so I, then they know they and sure was, will <laughs> and you can imagine you know it wasn't a nice period to be honest because my mum my friends I mean they were literally crying and I thought they were mad at me and they were like but we would have helped you you mm. know and it, it changed my thing about why you talk to somebody because they were so gutted that they couldn't just be there for me it wasn't because I was burdening them it wasn't because you know I was putting some emotion on them or they didn't want to hear it they were like but we've known you all your life you know my friends since I was 11 first yeah. day of school you know they were crying saying but you went through all this on your own Mm. And that made me realise that actually, no, never again will, if I'm going through a bad place, will I not ask for help or tell somebody. Mm. I just need to chat. Sometimes you so just important. want to chat. Of course, and, offload. Um, that's what I, I do now. But yeah, so in 2004, 
it just started getting better and better and better. You know, I fell at the World Indoor Championships. Of course I did. <laughs> um, and then I just thought, I don't care. I'm just, I'm 34. I'd won 10 major medals up until that time, half while I was still serving, half while I was out, all through seven years of injuries, illnesses, lots of things. I'd had, um, there's a lot of women in here, so I can say, I'd had uh, three um, below operations, um, <laughs> ovaries and cysts and floating I had lots of things that people don't actually know about, yeah. yet I was still one of the best in the world. And mm. sometimes it's not about being at that level at all. And I'm not saying that, oh, you know, you're best in the world, but you have to realise actually sometimes how good it, you are in your own life at certain things. And we always put a negative on our things. The things that come negative in our life or we doubt ourselves, we bring them to the fore rather yes. than remembering the little things that we were good at, you know, yeah. and patting ourselves on the back. And I think I started to pat myself on the back and say, do you know what? I am good. I can do this. And I didn't talk to any press, any media uh, my team, the physio and the training partners and the uh, performance director said, let's just let your legs do the talking. And I felt so good. I won all of my 800-metre international races that year, lost all my 1,500 metres, ironically, given that was my dream, because <laughs> I run so crap, because I was like putting pressure, I've got to win this. Shit, I've got to win that. Honestly, I was just so, so crap. But I went to a holding camp in Cyprus and... It just fell into place. I mean, I, have to, I believe in fate. I can't tell you enough. There's so many things that happened to me during this period of time where I go, oh, my God, there was a sign. You know, it's like... Yeah. What I loved uh, was hearing you describe on several occasions, I think you say it's three, mm. that before you raced you knew you were going to win. You felt like you were floating. Your body felt absolutely perfect and you just knew. That is uh, a remarkable sort of state to be aware of. Like, you yeah. must be very in the moment of knowing, wow, like this is happening and it's, I'm going for gold. And you just knew. Yeah, it's so bizarre because I think when you're totally at your top form in, in that side of sport... Um, you have to have an element of like that self-belief. And it was almost like, do what you do best. I could run, you know. I knew how to run. I knew how to race. And I'd only had it three times in my career when I broke the British record, when I'd won the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, and then uh, mainly in the 1,500 metres. It just felt like, oh, I don't know, it's weird. Like, something was holding me up. I was just like, oh. Wow. You know, floating. Wow. I, when I won the 800 metres, you know, it's such a shock to me to win the 800 metres winning the 15 was almost like well if I get a medal that'd be great when I won that it was just this weirdest sensation you know I do believe in fate but I believe that you only create fate if you you've gone on a journey for yourself that it could be tough you know it could yeah. be easy it could be fun well it was you, for you you'd be aware of stuff and this then is your third, your third Olympics yeah. and, and years and years of that dream mm. I, I can't imagine that euphoria of having yeah. not only one gold medal, but a surprise second one that you weren't expecting. That must have just been... Yeah. You can't fathom that sort of euphoria. It's no, crazy. I mean, you, you know, you can dream as a kid as a fluffy cloud and then you go on and on. And I always believed I could still win. It was despite the injuries, I'd, I'd get there. And then winning the 800, if anyone remembers, the eyes popping out of the head mm -hmm. moment. That was the eyes popping out of the head moment. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> you know, I remember, like, coming down the line thinking... I wasn't thinking I'm going to win. I was just thinking, relax, relax, relax. And I took this one step forward, and I won by the fitness of this bloody vest. Really? Not point, that, not wow. For the, second, for the first four. 
first four women. That's how close it was. And I started to celebrate, you know, kind of like, you know, and then suddenly felt, ah, I could not have done it, you know. And then I'm looking down and the big slow-mo, the slow-mo's coming. And there's this British photographer in the inside of the truck jumping up and down like a madman. And I look, I'm looking, looking, and he's going, you've won, you've won. And I was like, ah, you know, and I'm doing it. I met him three months later. He said, Kelly, best night of my life. Oh. Also the worst. Oh. Didn't get one bloody photo of me. <laughs> <laughs> What I'm intrigued about is after you've reached that goal yeah. and something that has been your lifelong dream, how do you then process what's next? What comes next? Because you've reached that high and you've reached that goal. And usually there's always like, oh, well, I can still do something else or I could if it's a career thing get a promotion or if it's a life thing I could try something new but once you've reached a specific goal mm. how did you start thinking about the rest of your life after the Olympics very very difficult it's like the same with coming out of the army or coming out of anything that you've been in for a long long time to actually believe you can be something else even better because why stop at just one big achievement you know something else mm. could be good I didn't know how to process that not having a big goal anymore. You have to remember, since 14, those two goals yeah. I had, I'd achieved. I'm very, very lucky to have had that thought process and have the ability to do it. But I didn't know what else to do. You know, I carried on for another year, I got injured again, and then I was like, well, I need to retire now because I haven't got the motivation and the drive to keep going and going through injuries. Why? And I just ended up just doing things that I felt passionate about. You know, I started my charity in 2008. I've been going for 12, nearly 12 years now, and... Um, we helped disadvantaged young people in area deprivation using athletes. We've helped over 350,000 young people in areas of deprivation. Mm, wonderful. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Um, I've just sort of done things that I thought I'd give it a go. I always think, right, there's a starting point, there's the end point, and along the way, how do I get there? I realise that you have to ask for help. I realise you don't know everything, even though we all think <laughs> we might do. Mm-hmm. And, something. and I realise that there's going to be barriers, setbacks, uh, failures, but if you pick yourself back up again or you learn a different way. Um, I suppose just having the driver. But I did go for, again through a really bad bout of depression again, uh, I, you know, admit during this time, um, in the last 15 years I've been retired now. Oh, God, 14 years I've been retired. Um, I've had up and downs with my emotions and my mental health is why I talk about it a lot more now. Because um, I realise that if you have such a big breakdown thing, I don't think it ever go. There will always yeah. be a, a moment, but it's learning to control those things and knowing what you need to do to get yourself out of those situations or to feel better about yourself. That's why something like this is so damn good. Honestly, you're brilliant. Because oh, this is, it is it, honestly, it's so great to have these sort of days because I think we are all so different. You know, we have to remember that. Not one of us is the same. Our ambitions aren't the same. The way we look, the way we feel, our drive, determination. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who you are, where your background is, where you've grown up. You as a person live your life every day and you have to find a way of managing that and it's like a roller coaster ride yeah but if you can get support and help and tips you suddenly find what works for you it's so good that you're saying that because um first of all we hear so often um in uh the media via people in the public eye whatever i used to have anxiety depression or i had a big breakdown and now i am fine and you think oh my god how did they do that i need to do what they did so i can be like that but your um, situation, and I've 
been quite honest in how my life has uh, kind of undulated. And I had a big, deep, you know, period of depression. And I haven't been that low uh, mm-hmm. since. But like you say, when you've been through something that felt traumatic, it is with you. And, and it's lear- like you say, learning to live with that yeah. and asking for help. Yeah, it's just managing life, I think, that most people have to do. But on the flip side of that, if you have a positive outlook in life, then most of those things can be pulled along and you can deal. And I think the great thing is about people that are open with their mental health and maybe for people that see people in the public eye being open is to say that it should never define you. It shouldn't be a limiting factor. It's part of your life that you have to deal with, cope with, and remember there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but also you can still be successful. Yes. You know, I was still winning medals when I was in depression and I was self-harming, mm. right? So it didn't stop me, but I was dealing with something badly. I'm, I feel that going through that in my life has allowed me to do what I do to this day. Mm. I talk so openly about it. I do motivational talking on stage for corporates for a living because we're all human beings. Yes. And once we remember that, we get through life in a better way, but we've just got to be positive of what we can. Remember to pat yourself on the back for something small or your biggest achievement. You know, your goal might not be running around the bloody trap, but it could have been getting married. Uh, having your children, getting a promotion, getting the first job you ever had, you know, losing a bit of weight that you wanted, whatever, make that your goal and go, I bloody done it. Yes. Because that's what d- drives you. Don't make it like it's a mountain. Like, yes. Clap, clap. Like, yeah. We yeah. have to. We've got to celebrate Do ourselves. That's what today's about. It's about, yeah, liking ourselves, Just, celebrating yes. ourselves, not feeling weird about doing that. It's so. So important. Don't let people judge you. Don't be no. judged. Don't look in the mirror and think, I'm not like her. Who yeah. gives a shit? Who because gives a shit? Might not be as good. I don't get, I, you know, I have to say, like, when I, le- when I finished and I was going to all these events and things, and I was thinking, God, I've got to wear dresses. I never used to wear freaking dresses. I mean, dresses, high heels, and I did all of that, and I went round. When my mum passed away, I was like, no, I am going to be me. The day of her funeral, I shaved off this side of the hair that I'd been talking about for three years. I mean, it was longer than this. I shaved it off because I thought, I want to be me. Yeah. I'm going to dress how I want to dress. I'm going to look how I want to look because I've still got my values. I've still got my respect for people and I still work damn hard and I still encourage other people to be the best they can. It doesn't matter how I look. Too bloody right. Um... I could literally talk to you until we do this again next year. Thank you to Dame Kelly Holmes for all the work she's doing. Thank you. Look, we all know the term legend is thrown around quite a lot these days, but Kelly, you are 100% legend. Thank you. I just so enjoyed that chat. And if you did, you might like to head back in our archives to hear the wonderful Victoria Pendleton talk about her post-Olympic life too. Get that and all our past episodes when you subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Next week, we get political. No Brexit in sight though, I promise you, with the founding leader of the Women's Equality Party, Sophie Walker. Hope requires that you get out of bed every morning and you reset your determination to be hopeful. It is work and it's hard work. But when you are armed with hope, nobody can take that away from you. And also, it's really intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, when I say I'm a feminist, you get the sort of, oh, feminist. Um, and when you say I'm an optimistic feminist, they're like, oh. 
Thanks again to Kelly, to the audience at Tatton Park in Manchester, you beauties. To the producers of this episode, Matt Hill, Thomas Griffin and Sarah Miles at Rethink Audio. And to you brilliant lot for listening. I'll see you next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.